A major exhibition is currently underway in Port Erin to mark the 130th anniversary of Port Erin Marine Laboratory. The Marine Lab first opened on a site on Mortuary Beach, Port Erin, in 1892, and the Winkle Pickers exhibition charts the story of the laboratory from the opening of the original buildings, the move in 1902 to the well-known site on the southwest of Port Erin Bay, through to its closure in 2006. The title of the exhibition, The Winkle Pickers, refers to the nickname that many residents of Port Erin gave to those who worked and studied at the laboratory. So this could be an odd one out competition. Uh, We have Hugh Davidson, who used to be a professor, and then three doctors, Peter Duncan, Andy Brand and Jeremy Paul, all of whom have a connection to the Port Erin Marine Lab. Uh, Hugh, if if you could start, I mean, you're the are you still you're the chair of Russian Heritage Trust? No, I'm not. I uh, I was at one time, but I, I was co-founder with my wife Sandra, so I am merely a volunteer now for Russian Heritage Trust. And th- this is th- this is a joint venture between uh, Russian Heritage Trust and um, and the former members of the Port Erin Marine Laboratory. Um, and uh, we currently have an exhibition called the Winkle uh, Pickers Exhibition. And it's on right now, and it's on from 10 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon every day, except on the, uh, the Queen's funeral this Monday, and it goes on until the Sunday, the 25th of September. It's a great exhibition. We're going to get over a 1,000 people. Tremendous feedback. I think uh, everybody would enjoy it. And we also have a book, um, which is only £10, and records the history for the last 130 years in a really interesting and lively way, uh, which uh, you might want to buy. And, and who, whose inspiration was this uh, exhibition? Well, about three years ago, um, Dewan Watterson, uh, the Speaker of the House of Keys, pointed out that um, this year will be the 130th anniversary of the founding of the of PEML, as we call it, Port Aaron Marine, Marine Laboratory. So the idea came from Dewan Watterson, and uh, I worked with Andy Brand and, and others, and uh, we formed a f- uh, a forum of seven of us, actually, two from Russian Heritage Trust, myself and our excellent coordinator, John Quirk, and then the three gentlemen here today, um, plus two others um, who can't be here today because, for one thing, there are only four microphones, and there were seven <laughs> of us. Um, and those people are Dr. Richard Hartnell, um, who was associated with PEML for 50 years and is a leading authority on both sea and land crabs, um, and the ecology of rocky shores. Uh, he spent many years working for PEML in very warm places like Egypt and the Caribbean, usually in the uh, Port Aaron winter. Um, and uh, he has made a massive contribution to this exhibition. Then we have Dr. Roger Pullin, and uh, he taught at PEML for a decade, and he consulted for the Asian Development Bank and the UN. He's founder secretary of the Manx Wildlife Trust, and he spent many years working in the Philippines um, on, on marine biology, and his wife is a famous TV personality there. And the other person we have is John Quirk, who is the RHT coordinator, and John did an amazing job in helping the team turn a mass of great ideas and work into a well-organized exhibition and book, working with a brilliant Tony Garland at the coffee shop. 
And finally, in thank yous, thank you to all the PEML and RHT people who volunteered to do shifts at the exhibition. They really made a tremendous difference. And we expect over a 1,000 visitors. And uh, without our two sponsors, the Gough Ritchie Trust and the Elizabeth Lucas Trust, without their support, um, there wouldn't be an exhibition. And both Gough Ritchie Trust and Elizabeth Lucas Trust have supported us from the very, very beginning when we started in uh, uh, eight years ago, eight or nine years ago. Uh, so thank you very, very much to both of them. So, so Andy, uh, I, I think it might be an appropriate time then to to for, to talk about the the, the Port Air and Marine Lab. I mean, it was such an important and iconic uh, institution um, in terms of Port Erin. Uh, it, it had a massive uh, impact, not least on on local tourism. Uh, you know, it, it supported the the hospitality sector, and during the sixteen years since its uh, closure. Uh, you know, we, we've seen quite a marked change uh, in, in terms of uh, the, the whole hospitality sector in Port Aaron, but, but it had such a big impact scientifically as well. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, well, I, I came here in 1966 uh, uh, when it was um, already been going for 70 years, but it was still, uh, it was a, a research department at that time, but... Um, in the early 70s, uh, Liverpool University established the School of Biology, and we had undergraduate students who spent the, their final year in Port Erin, um, and that uh, started off, uh, um, well, the first year, there were nine of them, but within a few years, there were over 40 a, a year staying for the whole year in Port Erin. Um, the um, number of postgraduate students who were doing research mostly for PhDs, they, uh, the numbers of those increased, so there were um, over 40 of those at one time. So with the technicians and support staff, in the 1980s, there were over 100 people working down there. So it was um, a sizable um, laboratory at that time. And and why, I mean, for 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 those who 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 aren't scientists, don't know anything about research or any of this, why why do you why why was a, an institute like that required? I mean, surely to goodness you can get samples from the sea and then just take them into a laboratory in a normal big university somewhere, and and that would be fine. Why why is it so? Was it so important? Well, it was important because it's in a, an excellent place to do marine biology. Um, uh, surrounded by uh, different environments, uh, sandy shores, rocky shores. Um, we had uh, small estuaries as well. We had uh, ships that were capable of operating throughout the Irish Sea. So uh, it, it was really an excellent place uh, in which to uh, to study here. Yeah marine science and presumably it was located in the isle of man uh, not just because of the the, the geographical uh, advantages that the, that the island had in terms of having so many uh, habitats uh, but also i presume that at the time that it was shifted because originally it was was it in north wales to start with and then it moved to to the isle of man um, presumably as well pollution would have been maybe a problem at, at some point and it was felt that if you want to uh, study 
a pristine marine environment, uh, you, you, you didn't need to have a big river full of chemicals uh, next to it. I don't think that actually came into it at the right. time. The um, laboratory was set up by uh, Professor Sir William Herdman, um, and it was really a, a Victorian gentleman's club at the time, and they established a field station on Puffin Island off the coast of Anglesey. Um, but that's a very small island, um, limited um, marine environments and also not easy to get to and no accommodation and so after five years Herdman was looking for somewhere different and uh, he hit on the Isle of Man and uh, came over here and uh, um, persuaded um, a Manx hotel owner to uh, build a small laboratory and that's uh, that was how it started but the sm the original laboratory was on the beach in Port Erin uh, the beach which is now called Mortuary Beach it wasn't called that at the time but after the uh, the lab was there until two, um, 2002 and then the bigger laboratory was built with um, funding from the Manx government on its present location. 1902, I presume. Sorry. Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to... to what's the century between friends? Um, Peter uh, Duncan, then, I mean, you, you would have been one of those uh, students who uh, had uh, a, a forced visit to the Isle of Man for a year. Um, what, what? I mean, c can you remember that far back? Uh, what, what, did, what did you think at the thought of having to spend a year on the island? Well, to be honest, I, I wasn't. I, I um, studied at Glasgow, and at the time, although I was interested in marine biology, um, I studied zoology, and actually, we Glasgow had the the Millport marine biological station which in some ways is very similar and so I did experience that it wasn't quite a year of purgatory on a, on a small island but but it was certainly a, a pretty intensive courses but we all I always refer to Andy as my academic grandfather because my supervisor during my postgrad had been had had studied um at, at Port Erin lab so I knew it well and Andy was um was my external examiner, as they call it, for my for my PhD thesis. So I knew Port Erin very well, and actually I was working in Australia when I the lab was intended to close, and a, and a, an opportunity came up to spend a year at the lab for the last intake of of honours students, and they were seeking short term academic appointments. And um, at the time, it suited me very well to come back to the Northern Hemisphere and particularly get a chance to, to work at Port Erin. And so what I did experience was was a whole cohort of, of honour students having that year on the island. <clears throat> and and although I guess there was a sense that the, the lab was, was winding down, it really must have been a fantastic opportunity for those students. They're a very close-knit group. Um, they worked together for that whole year. They were in an interesting environment academically, but also, you know, socially and community-wise. So I, 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 env I would have envied them to do it. And and being one of their uh, tutors and lecturers, I, I did see that, and I thought it was a great chance for them. And, and in in terms of the actual laboratory itself, I mean, uh, what what um, 
clearly it had a, a, a huge uh, reputation around the world and indeed still has in many, many people's uh, memories it lives on um, but but uh, what, what did you know about the laboratory before you uh, you, you came I think it's worth asking the other guys this question, but from my point of view, because I'd always worked on scallops, the Port Erin Marine Lab was was really was internationally known. So I, as an as a as a post grad, went to the first of the international pectinid workshops that I was involved in. It had already been going for quite a long time. And incidentally, I'll drop a plug in here that we in, we intend to bring that uh, conference to the island next year. But because of my association with that over the years, I, I the Port Erin Marine Lab was one of the foremost institutions, and again, it sort of solidified my um, working relationship with Andy over the years. And I, th I think anyone who worked on scallops absolutely knew about the Port Erin Lab. But subsequently, I, 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 we mentioned the Philippines in relation to Richard, uh, Roger Pullen, sorry, um, and I, I met people there who had been taught at the lab. So the, the, a point has been made throughout this exhibition. You can pretty much go into any marine laboratory around the world, and there'll be there'll be some connection with Port Erin. Jeremy Paul, uh, they, they they taught taught uh, drawing and painting, didn't they? <laughs> no, not uh, not really. I mean, I I first became aware of not only Port Erin but the the laboratory when I was a. A 14 year old um, at my school in Blackburn and announced I wanted to be a marine biologist and my then uh, biology master said oh well you need to go to Port Erin uh, he'd been on a field course and he said that's the place to go via Liverpool University so I I managed to get into to Liverpool I did two years in Liverpool and then came over here for my honours year in 1975 and then I stayed on to do uh, to do a PhD. So when when I arrived in 1975, I think we were the third intake of, of students. So it was just building up at that stage. And and for you, I mean, had you been to the Isle of Man before? Did you know anything about it? As or? an undergraduate in in uh, in Liverpool, you came over for three week field courses and that mm. sort of thing. But um, I'd never been to the Isle of Man before, but I was very taken with it when and I came. And back in. then in the 70s, it was, it was was we still had a, a thriving tourist industry. There was loads of, uh, of, of things happening and things to do on the island, wasn't there? Yeah, but we we never had a chance to do any of them. They they used to really make us work for that. <laughs> we did we did the whole course in that three yeah. three week period. Right. So it was uh, yeah. it was pretty intense. Yeah. Peter, uh, just listening to Jeremy, it's quite interesting that he says at the age of fourteen, the 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 renown of the laboratory was known. I took a call yesterday uh, from a woman who in nineteen sixty five visited the lab as a, a sixth former and her aunt who accompanied her at the time um was was worked for um I guess we'd think of it as a sixth form college or something like that in the northwest of England. And so they were regularly bringing students over, not university students, but actually school and post school students over to the lab and having an intensive field course and she actually said that she did she'd stayed at one of the hotels and she she's coming to the exhibition next week and she brought over she's going to bring over all the information from the time but it was interesting the hotel she stayed in 
um, in Port Erin was charging a pound a night, <laughs> which in 1965 seems to be quite yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. But it was obviously made, it had a reputation that was attracting people from all over mm. the region and was actually contributing to the economy a long time ago. And uh, Hugh, uh, uh, you're, you're going to tell me that this would be a fantastic way of revitalising the tourist sector by offering uh, <laughs> hotel rooms at a pound a night. Well, that sounds a good idea to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, a point Andy made that um, uh, actually we've got two former students here who did their first two years at Liverpool and their final year here. And uh, this final year, it was pretty hard to get into because you mentioned there were, what, 40 students? And I think there was yeah. over 300 applications. Yeah, so we had... One in eight or something got in. In the 1980s, Liverpool University had more applications to do marine biology than any other science subject. We had over 300 applications for, well, for 30 places, but in the end we ended up taking 40 and then it crept up to 44. Um, but, uh, you know, that was the sort of level of demand. So we were able to pick and choose uh, um, good students. And our students were always very keen. Uh, <laughs> and for the uh, students that spent the whole of their final year, it was a very different experience than being on a main campus because they had access to the laboratory seven days a week. They had keys to the laboratory so they could go in 24 hours a day. Um, so, you know, there was plenty of opportunity to, to work. They were very keen. Well, after the break, uh, Jeremy is going to help me explain my rather uh, strange introduction about uh, painting and drawing. So, Jeremy, um, uh, tell us about why I was referring to, to um, <laughs> painting and drawing for those who don't know your work. Um, well, after I finished my PhD, I, I did manage to... Um, work as a marine biologist in Spain and then mostly up on the west coast of Scotland um, and then I moved back to the island in 1989 um, and a year or so later um, I wouldn't say I gave up marine biology it was rather marine biology gave me up um, and I'd made a bit of a, a sort of a, an inroad into pursuing a career as an artist having having been unemployed once before from marine science, which is what happens to a lot of marine biologists during their career. So I then decided to stay on the island and pursue uh, my life as, a, as, a, as an artist. But I've kept sort of very close contact with, with people at the lab. I mean, the, talking about the life there as a student, um, when I was at, at Liverpool and you announced that you were going to the Isle of Man, um, for your final year, a lot of other students said, what, where, why? Um, but we were a very small group when, when we came over. There were only 14 of us. Um, and it wasn't only the fact that the lab was available all the time, but the lecturers and staff were available all the time, which is a completely different experience from being in a big university campus. Um, so, and, and also at that time, the, the staff there weren't that much older than us either. So we not only had a fantastic experience um, doing the academic work, um, but also the, the whole social aspect of working at the laboratory was, was you know, incomparable really from, from anywhere else. And, you know, I'm still in touch with all my cohort of students um, all these years later. So, 
And m most people's awareness of the marine environment at best would probably get as far as uh, the, the interaction between the land and the sea where you know, people can see rock pools and they, they uh, will bathe and, and mm. uh, they, they'll have their feet on the sand and things. But um, th you know, it's, is it something like 80, 85% of Isle of Man territory is seabed, yeah, yeah. Um, which is a vast, a vast amount of, of uh, well, a vast area, vast habitat, isn't it? And, yeah, and, mean, and most people just, all, all we really see is, is the blue surface. Yes, I mean, we, as students there, both as undergraduates and, and postgraduates, we were incredibly keen, um, you know, almost to the to the point of being obsessed. You know, we were, we would be down in the lab until 10 o'clock at night sort of thing and, and then go to the pub. But, um, you know, and just, just the amount of, of information and knowledge that you accumulate um, through interacting with the staff and, and other students doing different projects as well, there was a great sort of uh, support network within within the laboratory, so you weren't just concentrating on your own particular subject. Mine happened to be scallops. Um, you've got three scallop biologists here. That's yeah. Um, but you you became involved in everybody's project. You would help them out with diving, um, collecting samples, things like that. So it, it was a tremendous sort of all-round education in in marine biology. And uh, well, Peter. I, I think it's a, a, an interesting point that Jeremy raises, and, and you raised earlier, the, the fundamental difficulty of exploring the marine environment, because most people just see it as a grey wobbly thing out the windows most of the time. But the fact that you concentrate so many people in one place and have the kind of access that Jeremy was talking about 24-7 with all the, all the lectures, etc., for over 100 years has meant that the baseline of data that we have for the surrounding waters is, is really phenomenal and the application of that data continues up to this day and I think the island has been successful um, not only just for its size but you know internationally and regionally in what it's done because it has relied upon that really high quality of data that we, we still maintain and the, the, the echoes of, of, of the lab have meant that we still We've retained that long-term data set, and I think we we can see it in what we do today. And for you, Andy, I mean, it's terribly sad, obviously, that uh, the the marine lab closed. I mean, you had was it forty years of, of forty of, years, yeah, yeah. As, as being one of the the go-to uh, scientists in in relation to scallops. But the, but the work that you did uh, certainly helped shape some of the really big. Uh, changes that we were able to introduce shortly after the marine lab uh, closed with mm -hmm. lots more closed areas fishermen getting totally behind the idea once they realized that actually the closed area in Port Erin had been so influential in terms of seeding uh, the southwest uh, certainly the southwest possibly the northwest mm -hmm. uh, of, of coast mm -hmm. of, uh, of the island for for, for scallops it was uh, it's it, one of those things that uh, the unfortunate situations of life that uh, you do all the work and then someone else gets the credit. Well, no, there's only, uh, there's only ever one person that does it first. <laughs> <laughs> so I can uh, take some pleasure from that. But uh, it took me 10 years to persuade the local fishermen. The Manx government were generally helpful, uh, but um, we had to have the fishermen on board, and it took a long time to persuade them. Um, 
But once that first area was closed, uh, again, it took uh, a few years before um, the stocks built up inside the area and the fishermen came to realise that there were all these young scallops that were swimming out of the area and they were fishing along the line of buoys. Uh, so there was this spillover effect. Uh, um, and it's uh, a great pleasure to me to see what, where, what it's led to with, uh, is it 10 areas now? Yeah. And, and in terms of that, uh, that whole, well, 40 years of, of, of study, what would you say was the, 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 the breakthrough moment for you? Was there any particular thing that, uh, that, that, that you, you, you got out of bed that morning and thought, wow, I've, I've just done something amazing here? <laughs> or, or, or was it all like that? No, it was all like that. <laughs> no, I mean, the um, having a closed area r- adjacent to what is arguably the most heavily fished uh, area probably in the world for scallops, you've got this wonderful um, situation for studying um, an unfished area compared to a very heavily fished area. So that... Um, well, I used to refer to it as my crown jewels because it enabled me to get uh, a lot of research money, not just from the Manx government, who was supportive throughout, but um, from European sources and from the um, um, British uh, uh, MAF. Uh, so we were able to... Uh, do a lot of work on fishing impacts uh, using uh, European money. Hugh, uh, you were trying to come in there. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, I think, and can I just put it into a wider perspective? Um, We're a small place, but uh, we've got a tremendous record of innovation um, in many, many areas, and I mean... Uh, for example, the Laxey wheel is quite remarkable, but I'm afraid we let it um, get into rather a poor state of repair. Um, we have a totally unique Victorian railway system consisting of steam, horses, and an electric. Um, and yet the horse, the horse trams are only stopping at Broadway. And we have a bit of a habit of taking our crown jewels and not dumping them into the sea, but... Uh, you know, putting them into a, a box somewhere. And uh, this is another example of it, where we are you know, a small place, Port Erin, um, becoming world-class in marine biology. And so relating to what, um, what, what Andy and, um, and, um, and, and um, uh, the rest of you were talking about, um, you know, just looking at this as the marketer, um, even though we don't have a building or an operation now, we've got a very, very strong brand which lives in people's minds. We've got a, still got an international reputation in marine biology. We've got a unique geographical position right in the middle of the RHC. It should be the Manx Sea because, you know, Ireland and, and, and the UK are just on the fringes, and we're right in the middle of the United Kingdom. So isn't there a way to capitalise on this past heritage and brand position um, and our geographical position to... To move towards a world-leading situation in certain areas. I mean, probably you're you're the best person to answer this one, mm. Peter. I think because you're you're in the seat, you know. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. Um, it's perhaps less of a bricks and mortar presence in that sense, but maybe that's the way the world is going anyway. But I I would certainly agree that that the reputation that 
the Port Erin Marine Lab established, particularly with scallops, but more generally, um, is maintained because subsequent to the lab um, closing, the contract for government science was awarded to Bangor University, and that's continued since two thousand and seven. So that's you know that's a that's a, an ongoing and and science needs that continuity of of long term data. So we have that now, and the work being done with. Andy's still been involved in this sort of thing so we still have the continuity of people and of the outputs and and that reputation is is still still valid internationally because of because of the the, the history and and the, the present commitment by government to basic science I think and and the Isle of Man remains a, a field leader really in in terms of scallop uh, uh, management yeah I, I I think so I mean we Subsequent to the lab, we, we've talked a little bit about the marine nature reserves and how the closure, the, the fishery closures led to that situation. But Ramsey Bay is probably the the post-lab jewel in the crown because the things that, that Andy mentioned, the ability to have control within an area and a, a fixed number of, of fishermen, um, good data to support it and actually monitoring it over, over years has meant that that has become a model um, not only for for the rest of the the, the territorial sea in terms of scallop management, it's be, the lessons learned there have been applied throughout, but it's also one that we promoted internationally. And indeed, there was a paper published by Isabel Bluer from Bangor University that we were all involved in um, just last year, which which highlights that kind of idea of that rare thing of having an area that you can manage and control and collect data on and you present it. It's not a laboratory, but it's the sea isn't a laboratory in that sense, so it's very difficult to do it. But the ability to have that, that laboratory-type situation in the Isle of Man, starting with Andy's work and, and continuing there, is still a really powerful thing and, and rare. And for those who don't know, the Ramsey Marine uh, Nature Reserve has, has various zones, hasn't it? There are certain zones that are completely closed off and other zones that are fished. How does, it, that, how does that actually work? Well, indeed, and, and in fact, it, it absolutely harks back to how Andy set it up and those 10 years of working with the fishing industry to establish it as a benefit. So when Ramsey, um, Ramsey Bay was established as a marine nature reserve by Fiona Gale, um there was a there was a the fishing industry was certainly receptive to it, but there was a trade off between fishery benefit versus conservation benefit. So as you said, there were five zones set up within Ramsey Bay Marine Nature Reserve. One of which, which is roughly half the size of the whole area, was dedicated to fisheries management, so that the fishermen could gain access to it. But it meant that all the other areas were protected, and the way that the fishery management zone has developed since 2013 when it when it became a commercial fishery again has been so so low relatively speaking so low impact and the footprint of the fishery is is a fraction of the whole area available and it produces a a fantastic product and you know it, it really is that idea of taking it from from basic science information to a product that that actually keeps the economy going and gives gives some benefit to to the fishing industry who have committed to this over the last thirty years. And of course, the great thing about that is that the the the, the, the catch 
is shared out amongst the, the, the Manx Fish Producers Organisation. Sure, so everyone benefits. But the lessons learned from Ramsey Bay have been extend, are being extended, have been and are being extended to the wider territorial sea. Um, so the ongoing work of the fisheries group in DEFA has met, so we had a consultation on future management of the King Scallop fishery recently and it, it's learned lessons from all of this for over the 30 years. And we're now starting to put in place something that will sustain the local fishing industry and visiting boats for the long term and that that's that's a rare thing around the coast and it's really it is absolutely traces its roots back to the to the marine laboratory and andy's work i would like just to say that um we have three scallop biologists here and we've had all this conversation about scallop fisheries and fishing impacts and closed areas but uh, I wouldn't like people to think that that was all that happened at the lab because <laughs> the Port Erin Marine Lab is world famous in a lot of other fields uh, um, fish cultivation marine fish cultivation started in Port Erin when you go to the uh, restaurant and get your sea bass that uh, is uh, read in the Mediterranean nowadays but the um, principal work on which that was based was uh, done at the Marine Lab in Port Erin with work on place back in the 1950s. Rocky Shore Ecology, uh, the lab has a tremendous uh, reputation for that. Um, and uh, a lot of other fields as well. And in, in terms, Andy, uh, of the... Um the, the relationship that you would have had with fishermen. I mean, one of the reasons why it's so important to have fishermen working with you is because they're out there all the time and there are lots of them, whereas uh, protection vessels or indeed uh, scientists uh, are few and far between in comparison. So you need to work with fishermen. Oh, indeed, um, yeah. But it's, 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 it's a, a, at best a tense relationship, would you say? Well, yes, yes, I think... Um, um fishermen are there to make money and uh, uh, so they view everything through that sort of lens uh, um, and uh, you have to persuade them that what you're doing is going to be beneficial um, uh, and that in the end they're going to uh, benefit from it. Uh. And of course when things are, are working well um, the, uh, the the scientist is the best best person in the world. Um, when they're not working quite so well, then uh, perhaps it's a different story. Uh, Jeremy, you were trying to come in. Well, there. I just wanted to 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 sort of emphasise the the wide range of of uh, subjects and, and expertise that came out of Port Erin. Um, in the exhibition, one of the most interesting photographs um, to me is. There's a, there's a photo of the 1976 postgraduate football team, and it's a motley-looking bunch. <laughs> I'm in it as well. But within that photograph, which is about a dozen people, there's a fellow of the Royal Society, which is the highest accolade in science, and he's a, he's a neurobiologist. Um, there's the director of the Marine Biological Association of the UK. There's a, a director of the Natural Environment Research Council, and there are two or three university lecturers in marine biology. So the range of, of people that came out of Port Erin Marine Laboratory who've gone on to tremendous things. Um, so yes, we've talked a lot about scallops and fisheries, but um, the, across the whole subject of marine biology, 
and people branching out from marine biology to, to other things. And so many people, as you say there, um, who were at the, um, um, uh, the marine lab um, subsequently fell in love with the Isle of Man and found ways of continuing to work here. Yes, I mean, I think I think Andy worked out there's something like 60 undergraduates still still here on the Isle of Man doing all sorts of things, uh, quite a few accountants and financial um, sector, but um, IT, IT. Um, there's a GP. Yes, yeah, yeah. one GP. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I suppose what that does though is it does instill an understanding, a better understanding of the natural world throughout the community, regardless of what what people do. And I think that's a really important consideration for the future of the Alaman. If we think of it in biosphere context, the more people who are aware of the fantastic environment that we have, whether it's marine or terrestrial, and are therefore aware and can contribute to it, I think is, is really important. You made the point about scallops and how how we've been dominated by by that from our professional points of view. But actually the idea of general marine biology having data on what lives in our uh, our local environment and the fact that the closed areas are more than just fisheries they meet our requirements for biodiversity conservation and everyone understands really that a good quality marine environment supports not just fishery production and the commercial side of it but actually everything else whether it's whales dolphins seals porpoises and all of those reasons that people come to the Elman to experience an ecotourism adventure if you like and of course the other element that your department is is looking into at the moment uh, blue carbon uh, carbon capture which not only um, can kelp forests they can they can capture carbon but they can also uh, at least in, in in some part uh, reduce the the impact of of uh, waves crashing in on the shores so. Ab- absolutely so I, again it comes back to that fundamental idea that a high quality marine environment which requires understanding and protection has benefits to our society that we we don't even think of even things like sewage sewage treatment okay not perhaps the most pleasant of circumstances but we've got to a, a positive position where we we relatively there's very few places that we release raw sewage into the environment now but it goes out as treated but it still gets processed by the marine environment and and that requires high quality marine systems in order to do that efficiently jeremy well it's just uh, i mean one of the other things that people are very aware of at the moment is is microplastics in the marine marine environment and the work on that started at, at port erin um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's been a, a world leader right across the, the, the board in, in marine science. Just coming back to a couple of points Jeremy made about the atmosphere of working there and how exciting it was. And um, I've taken part in many teams, uh, some with academics, and generally speaking, working with academics isn't necessarily a particularly pleasant experience <laughs> because they all have their own agendas and they tend to be nitpickers and so on. And um, I must say that John Quirk and I have found it a, a great experience working with uh, with our five colleagues because they really work as a team and, um, and they help each other. Um, and um, they, they've got a sort of common objective, um, no personal agenda. So it's been a great experience and also a very moody experience because you're all very clever people, but they're also rather amusing people. So in all our various meetings, we had 
and an occasional pint of beer and so on, we we had a lot of laughs, didn't we, along the way? But did, so, I, could I just link that to the community and social contribution of um, of, of the PEM students? You know, in football, cricket, cabaret, and everything else. Would one of you like to elaborate on the social context, John, John Slynn, and people like that? Well, when you have a uh a lot of young people, young energetic people, they need things to do to let off steam. So uh, sport is an obvious uh, thing, but um, the other more intellectual pursuits were, I mean, we used to give lots of lectures uh, to uh, all the women's institutes in the Isle of Man and the Provost Clubs and things like that. So there was, there was a lot of interaction with the... Um, local communities and of course at uh, one point the the, the aquarium uh, yes. uh, which uh, that was certainly my my first uh, introduction to Port Erin uh, Marine uh, Lab was uh, uh, as a mm. very small boy going and looking at octopuses and, and things like this and, mm. and being amazed by it all we used to record the numbers of people coming through the aquarium and one year there were 43,000 now maybe that wouldn't be enough to uh, um, sustain a modern aquarium, but uh, for the Isle of Man, it was uh, a very uh, super thing to do on Sundays uh, for families uh, on wet Sundays. Uh. And I think it is quite bizarre, really, isn't it? When you think, going back to that figure of 85% of the the territory of the Isle of Man is underneath the sea, uh, and we and we've just got nothing really uh, on the island. Uh, you know, a few information boards perhaps, and uh, mm. and this fantastic exhibition. Uh, but uh, and, and occasionally, I, I was about to say we've got nothing. And here, there's a list of things that we do have. Uh, so the um, the uh, the day that's organised by the Wildlife Trust and and various others that, that, that where, where people have the opportunity to 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 look at uh, wildlife in the, the various tanks and things that are there, but. But yeah, we, we, we really don't celebrate the fantastic uh, biodiversity under the sea that yeah. we have. I we? think that's actually one of the points. The, the Manx Wildlife Trust uh, Marine Weekend is is one of the, the relatively few ways you can you can show people what's down there because it's a really difficult place to 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 work in or to explore. I mean, there is world class diving around the island, and but but it, it still ends up quite it's a limited number of people that can do it so it is a constant challenge to find new ways of of doing it and and we saw a few years ago blue planet and high high definition photography and things like that are are certainly ways of of doing it but um it it does remain a, a slightly the sea is a mysterious and and an attractive place for for students to try and work in but i guess for for most people it's it, it's a bit inaccessible and and it's a challenge for sure. And, and just just before we started this recording, there was a, a sighting of a, a minky whale just just outside of uh, the the, uh, the the Douglas Bay here. And, that, that's um, a, yeah, that's and, and imagine an animal that big yeah. wandering up and down yeah. the, the hills on the island. Everyone would be wanting to look at it. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it, it's actually commonplace at this time of year because the herring shoals come inshore. And Andy might want to talk about that because the reason he came to the to the Port Erin Marine Lab was not for scallops, it was actually for herring. And he has some great stories about going out on the herring boats and the herring hogs, as it, as it were. But actually, 
<clears throat> my role currently in relation to the marine nature reserves is to say to people, okay, if you want to see minke whales, then go to Marine Drive at between October and, and November every year. And so long as the herring come, then the minke whales will come. And, if, and it, that can then be built into things like tourism and say, well, if you want to come and see that, then that's the time to do it. But there is, again, it requires data and people like Whale and Dolphin watch to collate that data, but we have it and we can promote it as, as best we can. And so it does make the marine environment a bit more accessible. Jeremy? Well, I, ju I just wanted to say that I, I find it very sad that um, children at the, the secondary schools and primary schools uh, on the island, very few of them go down onto the shore as part of their um, curriculum during, during school time. Um, you've got this fantastic marine environment all the way around the island, and yet it's not included in, you know, you don't do nature walks and things like that, which what started me off interested in, in wildlife and, and, and the environment, you know, from, pri from primary school. You know, very few of them get a chance to, to go down and be shown what's there. Herring spawning, uh, Andy, uh, I, I, I seem to recall, I can't remember what, you, you'll know the time of the year, but uh, uh, Annie and myself, we, we were out uh, at Scarlet and uh, just down on the on the uh, the shore there and all of a sudden there was just loads of these tiny little things hopping out of the water and later i discovered it was a it was tiny herrings um that were were there but uh, tell us about herrings because again I, when i was relatively a, a young uh, probably about 7 or 8 years old i remember hundreds and hundreds of ba barrels stacked up on mm. on the quay in port st mary and then within a couple of years, it had all disappeared. Yes, yeah. I mean, there is a Manx stock of herring that spawn um, off uh, um, the coast between Langness and Douglas, sort of seven to 11 miles offshore. And they spawn there from early September to uh, uh, the end of October, really. Um, but uh, the herring appear in the Isle of Man every year in uh, June um, on the west coast where they come to feed. So the fishery uh, for hundreds of years has been on the west coast early on and then as the season progresses the uh, fishery moves south uh, and then round to, uh, following the shoals round to the east coast for spawning. But then uh, the herring is unusual in that it uh, lays eggs that stick on the seabed. That's fairly unusual for a commercial fish. Uh, most of them have planktonic eggs, but uh, they stick on the seabed. But when they hatch out, the larvae f float up into the plankton and get carried over to the English Cumberland Lancashire coasts and some years to the bays of southern Scotland. Uh, and then we still, I think, don't really know what happened to them in the first two years of their life. They, they stay in the RSC, but um, they only really um, gather for spawning um, in, in June. And but the, fi the fishery in the 70s built up. There was a series of really successful year classes, and uh, if you get a successful fishery, that attracts more boats the next year, and so... Uh, um, the stocks went up, but then so did the fishery, and then the stocks collapsed, uh, um, and then the fishery was um, 
limited um, by a total allowable catch, uh, and it has built up a little bit uh, since then, but by then uh, there are a few boats that have the gear to fish for herring nowadays. Mm. Well, sadly... Uh, believe it or not, we are drawing towards the close of the programme. Hugh, uh, a, a final word. What, what, what can you tell the, the listener if, if, if their interest has been piqued by, by, by the programme? Um, how much time have they got left to, to go and find out about the exhibition? Not very much. Time is racing on. Um, and uh, the exhibition is, is open until Sunday the 25th of September. Um, it's closed on the on Monday, the day of the Queen's funeral. Otherwise, it's open from ten o'clock to uh, four o'clock in the afternoon. Sometimes we have refreshments, um, and we'd like to help thank Pam Crow for doing that. Um, and it's at St Catherine's Church Hall, you know, just by the the church in uh, in Port Erin. And many of the people are coming in from outside Port Erin. We've had tremendous feedback quality feedback and we're going to get well over a thousand people and more are welcome and finally i just like to thank all our volunteers because we we have um four shifts a day or four people a day um and a, a lot of the pemel people and russian heritage people have uh, have manned the exhibition uh, for a, you know for a full three-hour shift at the same time as also manning russian heritage center so it's been a bit of a challenge but um it's been taken up successfully by by all our volunteers so thank you so much for that and by the way excellent book as well uh which has all the pictures of the the exhibition 93 of them i think no 326 photographs in that book <laughs> right 93 posters and 326 photographs so a very exciting uh, book which is the only record and it only cost 10 pounds oh, it's a bargain it was a great tragedy that such a well-respected institute had to close in 2006 i hope you've enjoyed listening to winkle pickers peter duncan andy brand and jeremy paul but for now i'm phil gorn thanks for listening